around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the final episode of the Engineers Collective for 2021. I'm Claire Smith, I'm editor on New Civil Engineer, and I'm joined today by our Head of Content and Engagement, Rob Horgan, and reporter Catherine Kennedy, as we look at the top news stories and features of the year and the background behind those headlines. There have been lots of ongoing stories that we've reported on over the last 12 months, which are continuing sagas. There's the long-awaited integrated rail plan that has caused anger and disappointment, now it's finally published. And there was the quashing of the development consent order for the Stonehenge Tunnel, and that has now led to further focus on whether a longer tunnel should be considered. And there's also COP26, which drove an increased focus on decarbonisation and climate change in the run-up to the event in November. But the news on carbon seems very quiet since, and I'm hoping that's just people just absorbing the news rather than it dropping off the radar. The government also published its transport decarbonisation plan, which you'll be unsurprised to hear sets out how it plans to decarbonise uh, the transport networks in the country from setting out new policy for road investment to... Uh, a pledge to electrify more of the UK's railways. Uh, then, of course, there's the soap opera that is Hammersmith Bridge, where the row over what to do and the funding for full repair is still going on. But we're not going to focus on those stories in our news roundup for the year. They are important. But what we're actually going to do is look at the stories that have captured your interest and run through the top five most read news stories and then our most popular features as well. So let's start with the news. In at number five, we have major milestone reached on the world's longest immersed tube tunnel. I'm glad to see the interest in this story. I've been following the progress on the film about tunnel projects since I joined Grand Engineering 10 years ago. It was already a couple of years in by that point too. I think it's really important to stress that this isn't just a mega project. It's a mega project between two countries. So there have been funding, political, environmental hurdles for the scheme to jump over to get to the construction stage which is far more complicated than any other mega project with the two countries involved. The scheme will see an 18 kilometre long immersed tube rail and road tunnel between Denmark and Germany built. And the news story that caught the attention of our readers is about the next phase of ground investigation, which was started in March following the start of construction on the Danish side. And I'm really excited to see that the construction has started on the German side this month too. It's definitely a project that I think we'll be following up with in more detail with a feature sometime soon. And number four, it's I'm ashamed to be an engineer. I think most of our listeners will be familiar with this one. It's, of course, all to do with National Highway's uh, long-running bridge infilling saga. I actually wrote about this topic on the first day back in January after the Christmas break, which shows you how long it's been running. Well, it's been running all year. And it, it kicked off properly once contractors filled in a 159-year-old masonry arch bridge in Great Musgrave in Cumbria, the image of the infilling was pretty shocking. And if you're familiar with the story, you'll already be picturing it and you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. It led to outrage from locals and engineers alike, with dozens of NC readers getting in touch to express their 
their anger, uh, with several even saying they were ashamed to be an engineer um, because of the images and the way that the infilling had been carried out. Ultimately, the reaction has led to an enforced pause on the infilling program with dozens of more bridges potentially facing the same fate as Great Musgrave Bridge. After months of relative silence on the subject, the National Highway's HRE team finally spoke to us in October and uh, quite surprisingly, actually, they said that they still stand by their decision, no regrets whatsoever, and that the infilling was absolutely necessary, which gives you the idea that once the pause has lifted, that you know more more structures will be infilled in in the uh, the coming months, which no doubt will lead to uh, more strong reaction from our readers next year. Taking third place this year is work to restore abandoned rail lines. So this story arose really after the Dartmoor line, um, which connects Oakhampton to Exeter, became the first former line to reopen under the Restoring Your Railway Fund. So once that big milestone was reached, we looked at what other abandoned railways could follow it back into service. So there was a whole range. We had seven in the article, but a few highlights. The Northumberland line. Um, work is ongoing on it and it's on track to, I think, welcome passenger trains by 2024. Um, so they've started some track renewals in certain sections on that project. And then there's the Leavenmouth Rail Link. So the plans were kind of revealed in June and then work to actually restore or construct the new lines is set to begin early next year but they've started already removing the old disused truck um, for that project and then the Portis Head line it's going through the DCO process at the minute so we've written quite a lot on that as well so those are three highlights and then there was four more in the article and it's um yeah it's a topic that seems to really interest our readers and there's quite a lot of activity as well uh, with the Restoring Your Railways Fund and lots of, of interesting routes that potentially are going to, to come back into service. This year's second most read article is the collapse of the Surfside condo building in Miami. Yes, so we covered the Miami building collapse when it happened in June. It was the 12-storey Champlain Towers in Surfside in Florida. Um, a really awful story to watch. And the video of the collapse um, is just really dramatic and very, very difficult, obviously, for everyone involved. Um, and after that happened, we, we ran this piece, which kind of summarised a lot of the early theories from engineers about what the cause of the collapse could have been. So... They were analysing the surveillance video that was released and con considering a lot of different potential causes. So there was the salt impact potential with it being near the sea, what structural issues there might have been, whether it could actually have been a foundational failure. Um, and then also the experts were talking about how the apartment block was due its standard 40 year review and was undergoing, I think, its recertification process. So it had been built in 1981. Um, so yeah, we ran this after after the collapse and and kind of looked at the various potential causes. Yeah, so it was quite interesting as well as analysing what happened in Miami. It also led quite a few people in the UK to question whether a similar collapse could happen here. I think it's quite reassuring that many of the experts we spoke to believed that UK had already learned valuable lessons from past incidents and reducing the risk here. 
But many people did draw parallels between what happened at the Champlain Towers incident and Ronan Point Tower collapse in the UK in 1968. And I spoke to former NCE editor Ty Bird, who worked on construction news in the wake of the disaster, about what happened and how the UK industry learned from it. And here's what he had to say. So can you tell me what led to the collapse at Ronan Point? Um, how to put this? Um, a not particularly adequate design and totally inadequate construction um, practice. The building was shoddy, uh, to say the least, and uh, nobody can be proud of what happened at Ronan Point. So what did the investigation into the collapse reveal? Well, it revealed it revealed a number of things that uh, a, the building obviously was vulnerable to, uh, to quite small explosions. Um, it was also uh, vulnerable to wind. Um, yeah, that wind loading hadn't been really taken into account. It was vulnerable to fire. Um, although it's interesting to know that um, following the, the failure and the investigation that occurred and the new practice that was developed, uh, towers like Grenfell uh, didn't actually, you know, Grenfell didn't fail even though it caught fire from top to bottom, uh, it, the structure didn't actually fail. And that's as a result of the work that was done after the collapse of Ronan Point. You've already mentioned the fact that the changes that came about after that incident benefited perhaps Grenfell, maybe not significantly as it should have done. What other changes happened in the sector in the five to ten years after Ronan Point that you think that can actually be pointed back to that collapse? Much more concern about um, wind loading, for a start, People didn't realise that tower blocks actually are <laughs> kind of vulnerable to wind because they're quite high. That was, I think that was one of the principal points. The tying together of walls and floors uh, in precast structures and, and in, in situ structures, much more attention was paid to that following Ronan Point. Um, a uh, progressive collapse was something that uh, was designed and built out of tall buildings uh, from then on. So what advice would you give to the UK civil engineering industry to make sure that we never have another Ronan Point incident in this country? I hope we'll never have a Ronan Point type incident. Anyway, I don't think we should have because of the, the, the regulation changes and because of the changes to construction practice that followed Ronan Point. Uh, But you can never say never. We knew full well that gaps between facades and uh, and structures are not a good thing without fire stops in the event of a fire. And, of course, we've had Grenfell. Uh, So the lessons that were learned uh, actually didn't uh, get applied in terms of improved practice. So that may happen again. But I think that uh, it's, it's largely a matter of common sense, you know. If something doesn't look right, and certainly Ronan Boyne didn't look right, and this is not just with the benefit of hindsight, then it probably isn't right. And you know, professionals should should uh, jolly will step in at either at the design stage uh, when when clients are being talked to, uh, or subsequently, and certainly during the construction stage, should actually speak out if they don't think something looks something's going to be right. Those lessons from Ronan Point still stand strong today and I hope we have more insight into the issues that led up to Champlain Towers collapse in time too. This year's most read news story on newcivilengineer.com was plans for an underground roundabout below the Irish Sea. 
this story followed up on the Downing Street proposal, uh, which suggested that three tunnels under the Irish Sea could connect in an underground roundabout beneath the Isle of Man. So this obviously is to do with the uh, ongoing discussion that had been happening about the potential Irish Sea crossing. So this was another suggestion as to what that could look like. So after the reports came out about the underground roundabout, I spoke to tunnelling expert Bill Gross to hear about what challenges there might be with that proposal, uh, whether it really was possible. So he, um, yeah, he he raised a number of concerns about it and said that logistically um, it could be challenging because uh, it would be a very, very long tunnel if it's a road tunnel, you know, what provision do you need to make underground for services, repairs? He said a railway environment would be easier to build. And also, you know, kind of was talking about could actually, if you have a tunnel, does it surface in the Isle of Man or does it keep going? What do you do with that? So it was an interesting discussion, uh, looking a bit, a bit more in depth into that suggestion. And the whole RSC crossing was part of the Union Connectivity Review. It was something that was being considered in a feasibility study as part of that. So now that the, the review is out, it has been decided that the an Irish Sea link is technically feasible, but impossible to justify because of the cost. So the review found that um, a bridge crossing would be around $335 billion and a tunnel would cost around $209 billion. So really interesting that, you know, they said actually it could be done, but it's the cost that is the prohibitive thing. Some detailed analysis in the feasibility study actually, so they had picked kind of or identified what would be the preferred routes and things like that. So if it was a tunnel, it would stretch from Bangor in Northern Ireland, which just interestingly is where I'm from, just as a side note, to Stranraer in Scotland. And a bridge would go from further along the coastline from Bangor, further south to Scotland, just south of Stranraer. Um, but it looks like after the feasibility study, a link is not, is not really an option. It's really interesting to understand that it is technically feasible, but the financial cost just makes it unrealistic. I wonder if we might end up coming back to revisit that project in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Who knows? But there's some really interesting stories in the top five. But I wonder which features proved the most popular. Harry, which story is in fifth place? In at number five this year on the top features countdown, it's use of 3D concrete printing on HS2. So this feature was written by Ty. It's about advances in 3D concrete printing, which are aimed at remodeling construction into a robotic manufacturing process that is actually time, cost and carbon efficient. So it seems like it could be a real revolution in construction design and, and practice. Um, and in terms of, of kind of its use on projects, this feature was really interesting because um, it's actually being applied on HS2. So it's a firm called Changemaker 3D who are behind the technology. And the conventional methods of manufacture generally involve components being molded into specific forms or cut from blocks, but the component printing 
is actually based on liquids, powders, strands or film being layered to build 3D structures without the use of a mould. Um, so it's being used on HS2. And I think uh, it's a major proof of concept trial by SCSJV, which um, will get underway in March next year. So quite exciting and a really interesting feature. Definitely. Harry, who's at number four? In at number four, it's Morgan Sindel's work to restore the natural beauty of the Dorset countryside by burying overhead cables. This feature covers Morgan Sindel's work with Sybil's contractor MJ Church on the 116 million Dorset Visual Impact Provision Scheme. It involved removing 22 pylons from the landscape to transfer views of an area of outstanding natural beauty in West Dorset, close to the village of Winterbourne Abbas, and burying the cables underground. The innovative solutions were most likely what caught our readers' attention with an ex-military vehicle, a digger designed for use on alpine ski lifts and a specialist rope access training for cable layers, all part of the project. Who's at number three, Harry? At number three on the list of top features, we have Untangling the Track at King's Cross. This one is another story we've been covering from the start of the year as Network Rail prepared for the job and then finally completed it in the early summer as part of the 1.2 billion East Coast Mainline upgrade. In simple terms, it was a track layout simplification project at London's King's Cross delivered over three years by the Central Rail Systems Alliance, which includes Network Rail, Atkins, Balfour BT and TSO. Engineers replaced the track, overhead lines and signalling equipment. They simplified the tracks on the approach to the station and reopened a disused tunnel after 44 years to increase capacity from four to six tracks. In total, the project involved the installation of over six kilometres of new track, over 30 new sets of points, over 50 new signals, over 20 kilometres of new overhead wires. What's more, it was delivered smoothly, on time and as far as we know, on budget. Who's at number two, Harry? At number two on this list, it's the M6 throughabout. I've really enjoyed watching this project taking shape as I've been up to Cumbria a few times with my family and I've bored them every time we've gone under this bridge talking about what the roadworks are about. I also think the term throughabout is a much better term than Burger Junction, which is the name given to the projects that we had this kind of format a few years ago. So while the project's aimed at freeing up capacity by creating an extra bridge across the M6 at Junction 19 across the roundabout, which is why it's a throughabout, to unlock house building potential and investment opportunity in Airport City, Manchester, it's the collaboration between Amy and Sir Robert McAlpine that I think is really interesting here. They're working as an integrated joint venture and they, along with National Highways, believe that that's been the key to successful delivery of the work, which has been quite technically challenging too. I'm not sure whether it's curiosity about the term throughabout, the engineering and challenge of a skewed bridge design or the collaboration that's made this story so popular, but it, it's certainly one, one that's provoked a lot of interest so far this year. So Harry, tell us what our most read feature was this year. And in at number one this year on the Top Features Countdown, we have NCE's look back at the impact which 9-11 has had on tall building design. This story was quite a tough one to write to ensure that we were looking forward to the impact the event had on the civil engineering sector and tall building design, while also paying respect to those who lost their lives in the 9-11 terror attacks. Catherine, Rob, I'm guessing you were both still at school on the 11th of September in 2001 when the two planes were flown into the New York World Trade Center, which was better known as the Twin Towers. I was working on a careers feature for NCE when we heard the news on the radio, and it's quite hard to comprehend what, what was happening because the instant news that we now got used to online just wasn't available back then. I didn't work directly for NCE back in those days, but 
on the day the attack happened, it was press day, and I know that the news team worked long into the evening to put the news into context for civil engineers. The front cover of that issue had a photo of the towers after they'd been struck with a single word, unimaginable. And 20 years on, that really does still sum it up. And it was quite hard to actually put a feature together that really was meaningful, like I said, and respectful to the people who lost their lives. Because the impact on building design has been quite profound. This article explores those changes in more detail, as well as the impact improved digital analysis of structures has brought to the sector too by this, this effect. Many feared that the attacks would mean the end of tall buildings, and, but it actually drove demand for better analysis and, and yet something the engineers really strive for. Some really interesting stories in that list too. Lots of innovation with 3D concrete printing, alpine climbing machines in Dorset, and new infrastructure delivery improving King's Cross and the M6 traffic flow. It's a stark story, but I'd be disappointed if the 9-11 one hadn't made the top position. Innovation is important, but it's critical we, we learn where things have gone wrong and improve future design. I can't believe we've got this far into the review of the year and we haven't mentioned COVID yet. So we're still working from home some of the time, in the office the rest of the time. But what's changed is we've been back out on site and that's the bit of this job that I really love. I'm heading out to HGS2's Euston site next week to see some initiative piling work before Christmas and there'll be more on that in the NC's February issue. But my other site visit was the Northern Line extension before it opened. NCE got the scoop on the opening date and I had a ride through the tunnels between the two new stations just ahead of the opening. It was fascinating to see how contracted joint venture for overall Lango Brook had used off-site construction to improve the finish of the stations as well as fast-track some of the work. But the real difference is the investment in the surrounding area that the link has unlocked. When construction of the new American Embassy at Nine Elms started six or so years ago, the area looked quite different from how it is today. It was just building site, there wasn't much there really, and now it's full of high-rises, residential buildings, and the old Battersea Power Station is finally being brought back to life as a residential complex, and it's surrounded by, like I said, loads of other residential and commercial developments that people are living in and working from already. And the funding for the use for the Northern Line extension is, is almost as interesting as the engineering itself, and you know I love a tunnelling project, as the developers who are delivering the change above ground are the ones who helped fund the underground extension. And it's definitely a model that I think Transport for London is looking to use elsewhere. Maybe that will be the key to getting Crossrail 2 or the Bakerline extension off the drawing board and actually onto site. So Rob, what about you? Where have you been and what did you learn? Well, after sitting in my shed for well over a year, my first site visit was always going to be a big one and thankfully HS2 obliged. Um, On an absolutely sweltering day in, in June, I headed to the TBM launch site for what will become the Chiltern Tunnels. Um, on my visit, the first of the two 2,000 tonne TBMs was already well on her journey beneath the M25 and onwards. Her twin TBM poised, ready to go as well, and, and so she did a couple of weeks after my visit to the site. In total, the two TBMs will dig separate 16 kilometre long tunnels for the north and southbound trains. There's obviously a lot of clever technical engineering going on, But what struck me was the enormity of the TBMs and the site itself, um, which is something you forget when, you know, you've been locked at home for a year, not getting out and seeing these projects. And, and, you know, it sort of really struck home how important it is for us and, you know, for the industry as well to get out and see things, to to learn from each other. So as well as the tunnel launch chamber, the site also has an on-site precast tunnel segment factory, which basically looks like a gigantic aeroplane hangar as well as a second factory, which is even bigger, 
which will will cast the segments for the viaduct uh, at the opposite end of the site from the tunnel entrance, which will take the rail line for 3.4 kilometres across a series of lakes and waterways on the northwest outskirts of London, and will be almost a kilometre longer than the fourth rail bridge, which, you know, again, just shows you the sheer size of the project. So as well as the size of it, what uh, what struck me was the, I guess, the unglamorous nature of working on the site. Um, obviously, HS2 is a pretty glamorous project. It's, you know, the number one infrastructure project in the country. But the reality of working on the site is something quite different. Um, take the on-site accommodation for for example, which is affectionately dubbed the HS2 Hotel. It's sort of tucked away in one corner of the site and is made up of 140 containers stacked on top of one another. Um, it's quite hard to describe or picture, I guess, if you're not familiar with it. But uh, if if you look up or you already know box parks, which exist in Croydon and Shoreditch, it's kind of a more dystopian, bleaker version of that uh, set in the middle of sort of barren land. Um so that's where the workers live. Um, in terms of the tunnelers, uh, in total, 17 men and women operate each TBM at any one time, working in 12-hour shifts. Um, obviously, as the TBM gets further along, the journey for workers themselves to get to the gantries um, takes longer and longer. And in those sort of final months, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take the crews up to an hour to get to and from the TBM from the on-site accommodation. So you're really looking at 13 or 14 hour days when you factor in the travel times. And on my visit, it was a hot day anyway. And uh, I asked the I asked the team on site there, you know, how hot does it get down there? And their answer was, it gets bloody hot. So <laughs> you've got to remember, you know, as glamorous as these projects are and how amazing they're going to be, people have to build them. And that's what uh, getting back out on site taught me really, you know, two things, I guess. HS2 is absolutely massive and uh, it's going to take a lot of hard work to get it built as well. Catherine, I'll throw it over to you now. Where, where have you been out on site? Yeah, so I went to Hinkley Point C at the end of September, I think it was. So it was to mark the fifth anniversary since the start of full construction. Um, but what was also really interesting is we were there for that milestone, but was also in the middle of the UK gas price hikes. And when all of that was sort of kicking off and experts were suggesting that the energy crisis could accelerate the transition to more renewable forms of energy supported by this nuclear backup power. So it was interesting to be there around that time and talk to the team about that and um, Hinkley's delivery director, Nigel Khan, said he felt that that situation did add weight to the nuclear case. Um, and he interestingly was saying that with the sort of gradual winding down of UK nuclear plants, only around 10% of the country's energy will be nuclear by the end of the decade, which will be provided by Hinkley and then Sizewell B. But this used to sit at around 20% and he kind of feels like it would be beneficial to return to those levels. So it felt like a really interesting time to just be at Hinkley and you just get a sense of the scale of it. It took us over an hour to walk around just one section of the site. And we finished on top of the turbine hall, looking over everything and you know, buildings, pipes, tunnels forming around these two reactor units. And it just is huge. And we were also there. It was a really beautiful September day, blue sky, really, really warm. 
So it was, yeah, a great return to site visits and a very interesting time and interesting to see the, the progress as well. Yeah, I mean, we've been able to do a lot of site reports from doing Teams calls and things like that, but it's so good to be out on site meeting engineers and talking about the work they're doing and really understanding the scale of the challenges they face. And I'm looking forward to much more of that in the next year. But the thing I am actually really excited about is marking NC's 50th anniversary next year. I mean, none of us were around in 1972, let alone old enough to be reading NCE back then. But there are lots of people who remember the early days in the magazine and the remit it had to deliver news quickly to engineers about the industry and the projects they were working on. We don't have a weekly print magazine now as it was when it was first set up, we're monthly, but we are still delivering what NC was set up to do. We do that through lots of different channels now with numerous news stories going live each day on the website, this podcast and a series of conferences and awards which NC never had 50 years ago. So how we deliver the news is quite different to half a century ago, but the aim of the content definitely hasn't changed. I've had several people ask whether we'll still call ourselves new if we're 50 years old in 2022. But I think what we still deliver is new. The magazine may have a long heritage, but we're still delivering stories about the latest developments. The new aspect is definitely still there. We've got a special supplement and event planned in May to coincide with the actual anniversary of the first issue. And I'm really looking forward to that. But first, let's enjoy the end of the year. So from everyone on the Engineers Collective, we'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas and a very happy and prosperous new year. And we will be back in 2022 with more episodes. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.